And the news having been conveyed, we turn to our live guest for the program, Garland S. Tucker III, who is the author now of a new book <coughs> titled Conservative Heroes, 14 Leaders Who Shaped America from Jefferson to Reagan. Why 14? Couldn't you find a 15th or a 16th? <laughs> well, Mel, I, uh, I did have to narrow it down. I guess one of the um, uh, interesting, exciting things about trying to do a book like this is you get to pick your 14, and that just seemed like a good number. And um, But there's nothing specially symbolic in 14, I don't think. Of course. But what shall we mean, what should one presently mean, uh, in common usage, by the very term conservatism. Uh, the lexicon has changed a good deal. What we now call conservatism went by other appellations in earlier times, didn't it? Well, that's that's exactly right. And uh, in the introduction to the book, I, uh, I do mention that, exactly what you're saying, that the terminology has changed quite a bit. It, you, what we call conservatism today used to, at least at one time, be called classical liberalism and been through a number of transitions, but um, I think there's a real question, uh, even if you accept the term conservative, there's a real question today to, as to what that really means. And in the introduction of the book, I suggest that there are five sort of key foundational uh, principles behind it. That Good. I love lists. Let, let's have the five. Number one is what? Okay. Uh, the first one, the uh, starting point, is uh, what I call a realistic view of human nature. It's kind of a world view that conservatives have that um, uh, would suggest that there's nothing in history that indicates man is in any way perfectible. Mm -hmm. And progressives or liberals uh, take a, a contrary view. I think they believe that um, Mankind's getting better, and that government can be the agent to perfect. Yeah. Somebody writing about Edmund Burke once said that a founding principle for him was, quote, the radical imperfectibility of human nature. <laughs> and that's, uh, I think conservatives would certainly contend that human nature's been consistent throughout history and is not really changing. Well, so if, we are, if we are capable of and the source of original sin, I suppose it follows that our nature is never going to be perfected. What's yep. the second principle? Well, the second one is that uh, the conservative would hold that the primary roles of government are two. Number one, to establish order, some level of order, and secondly, to preserve freedom or liberty. Mm -hmm. And that um, really beyond those two, and this sort of gets to the third point, that the role of government is limited if you go beyond establishing order and preserving liberty, that you should really just stop right there. And uh, that's if government can do the first two, that's enough. It's interesting to remember that, um, and Jefferson is an important figure in your book. We'll talk about him shortly. Um, one uh, quote that is attributed to him, I'm sure this is a correct quote, is um, that um, uh, that um, that government governs best, which governs least. Is that a direct quotation? <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's very interesting. Uh, that is widely attributed to Jefferson, but Jefferson scholars say, I mean, real scholars say that they can't find evidence. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. I found, uh, uh, it's been around a long time because I found uh, a direct quote from a, a politician in the 1840s who was 
in a letter was quoting Jefferson as having said that. So if Jefferson didn't say it, he's it's been incorrectly attributed to him for a long time now. And if he didn't say it, he should have, because it does summarize a good portion of his political thought, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I think uh, there's no question that if he didn't say it, he would not mind having it attributed mm-hmm. to him. Okay, we're up to three. Number four? Uh, the fourth one is that there's uh, an inseparable relationship between property rights and human rights. I think um, conservatives would say that there's uh, never been a society or a government where uh, human rights were upheld if property rights were not also upheld. So mm-hmm. it's very important that that link Somehow something which suddenly comes to my mind that I don't remember the detail, I'm sure you do, um, is the Supreme Court decision of not too many years ago which in essence took away private property so somebody could build a big motel someplace up in yeah, New England. That's uh, that's exactly right. The uh, eminent domain or whatever the term is for that. But uh, that's, uh, and this is a concept that goes, certainly predates the American Revolution, goes back to John Locke, um, who said that, uh, you know, the, that the two rights were, uh, just inseparably linked, and I think conservatives today agree with that. It possibly might even be uh, traced as far back as Magna Carta, don't you think? Yeah, could be. Yeah, could be. and then the last, the fifth, that rounds out this list of basic conservative principles. And then the the fifth one is that uh, conservatives believe that um, a social and political life of a community, or uh, certainly a nation really depend on private virtues. It's the virtues or beliefs of the individuals in the aggregate that help define the community or the state. And uh, and in the case of the American Republic, those private virtues were well grounded in what we call the Judeo-Christian uh, belief or philosophy. But uh, we would not require that all um, that um, that all worthy governments uh, who are essentially given to uh, freedom must be uh, somehow grounded in uh, Judeo-Christian religion. No, I think it's it's certainly important to note that the founders uh, were careful not to establish any religion, no denomination, or anything like that. But the 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 basic principles of Judeo-Christian philosophy were very much evident in the private lives of the founders, and that's reflected in, in what they wrote and did, and, and I think is reflected in the 14 leaders in the book. You see Jefferson as very important in sort of setting the stage for this line of thought and this line of political philosophy, <clears throat> yet it is worth remembering, uh, and is this somehow a contradiction of which... Uh, forces itself upon us uh, via the historical record that Jefferson himself was uh, publicly and visibly agnostic and made a good deal of that fact. He's famous for having done a version of the Bible which takes out all references to a transcendent deity. Right. Well, and as is true with a lot of Jefferson, there, uh, there are quotes from Jefferson that uh, certainly indicate what you just did. There are also uh, some quotes from him about the importance of religion and, and uh, supporting civic life 
Um, also interesting that he um, attended regularly attended worship services at the U.S. Capitol when he was president, and um, so I think those, uh, even though we would say in retrospect Jefferson was not really an orthodox Christian believer, uh, he certainly never disavowed the basic principles underlying Judeo-Christian thought. He may also have held, uh, if only secretly or quietly, to the position that you get from many secular conservatives these days who say whatever uh, ultimate truth resides in religion is not the issue. What is important is that religion provides a framework and a set of um, of shared values and aspirations which hold a society together and give it some continuing moral purpose. Uh, religion is functionally essential, whether finally uh, true or not, is, uh, is the nature of that I, assertion. I suspect that's pretty close to what Jefferson really believes. Yes, I, I do I too. you're right. I think yeah. it's what many of my friends believe. It may be what I believe. Um, now, you've chosen to look at um, a succession of men, beginning indeed with Jefferson. Um, would uh, our history have been much different if any or all of them had not lived and worked? Well, I think uh, I think each of them uh, represents an important chapter in the in the chronological thread as we move through American history, and uh, I think the important consistency or thread is their commitment to these basic uh, conservative principles. But certainly each of the each of the 14 men uh, was called on to address different issues. The issues were not the same in the first half of the 19th century as they were in the last half of the 20th century, say. Now, did Jefferson but the just, principles were the same. Did Jefferson just talk these principles, or do we find them evident in his uh, performance uh, in general as a public person and then certainly well, as president? That's a that's an interesting and I think important question. Uh Purposely, um, uh, partially for the sake of brevity, but also for the, I think it, it helps the consistency of the book. I focused on Jefferson and Madison very narrowly on the 12 years prior to Jefferson's election as president, the 12 years when Jefferson and Madison were essentially in the opposition to the Federalist policies of mm -hmm. Washington and Adams. And I think arguably Jefferson and Madison were more conservative in those years of opposition, certainly more in favor of limited government than in the 16 years during their their first Jefferson's presidency and then Madison's. They became a good bit more expansive in their um, willingness to extend the reach of government than they had been uh, in the opposition. How would you define federalism as it was applied as, as we find it in the Federalist and as it is used today? Well, the, of course, uh, in Jefferson's time, the Federalist uh, referred, I guess it had several meanings, but one was the Federalist Party, which was the party of Hamilton, wound up being the party of Hamilton and Adams. And uh, I think in general, the connotation and the meaning was that the Federalists of that day were... Uh, certainly more in favor of a stronger central government, whereas Jefferson and Madison, particularly in the years in which the, bo the book focuses, 
were much more intent on maintaining the rights of the states, limiting the power of the federal government. Do we see the federal government, the central government, uh, over the full course of our history, uh, sort of following an urge to grow and to command and to take over? Uh, has, has the expansion of the Federalist been rather like uh, what we have in a popular song about the, uh, the eggplant that ate Chicago, that it just <laughs> continues to expand and expand yeah. until it is everything? The growth uh, seems pretty inexorable, I guess. It, uh, uh, of the leaders that I highlight in the book, um, the uh, arguably the most successful president, conservative president, was Calvin Coolidge. And uh, if you look at his term in office, he actually was able to shrink the size of the federal government, both the budget and the number of employees which was a remarkable feat over five years, and um, one that Reagan, it was one of Reagan's goals, but he was not able to, to come anywhere close to achieving that. I would uh, suppose the, because he didn't have Congress, but... Um, you, you would agree, I'm sure, that the ultimate personification of Federalist expansion of, uh, of central power would have been Franklin Roosevelt. Yeah, I think the, the first big surge in federal growth was uh, during the Civil War. Sure. And it's it's true that uh, I think without exception, anytime there's a major war, there's a lot of pressure for the central government to grow. It has to conduct the war. And that certainly occurred during the, the Civil War. One of the interesting chapters in the book was, I think, was uh, Grover Cleveland's presidency. Uh, he was the first Jeffersonian elected after the Civil War, really in the last half of the 19th century. And um, even though it's largely forgotten and certainly not uh, very uh, widely claimed by the Democratic Party today, uh, he was the last conservative Democrat to serve as president. Um, he was just relentless in trying to wring unnecessary spending out of the government. He vetoed over 500 spending bills, which was a record for any president, and um, was a very um, honest politician in a very corrupt era, and a, in many ways a remarkable man. Where, but where, then you, where, where, did, where did Lincoln stand? Obviously, there was tremendous expansion of federal power during the Civil War. Did yeah. that bother him? Was he in a state of conflict over it, or did it accord with his own natural tendencies? Well, Lincoln, of course, before the war had been a Whig, and Whigs uh, tended to be more, uh, they're more or less the successors to the Federalist Party. And by comparison uh, to the Jeffersonians of that day, they were much more uh, receptive to, to a strong central government by today's standards, uh, which is difficult to judge by, in retrospect, but um, Lincoln would uh, would be closer to a Jeffersonian than to a, a progressive, but uh, for his day, he was more on the uh, expansive side. And of course, his primary objective was to fight and win the war. And in order to do that, uh, it really required a good bit of expansion and federal authority. Now, it would have to be a matter of conjecture as to whether he would have tried to reverse that after the Civil War, it's difficult to tell. But um, 
Uh, Andrew Jackson is not one of your heroic 14. Is he indeed of the opposition? Well, uh, it's interesting. I I did give some serious thought as to whether to include Jackson and really concluded that he was uh, certainly not a clear-cut concern. His allegiance to the five principles that I outlined was not as clear-cut as I would have liked, so that was the reason I did not include him. We have three... um Southern uh, American politicians who um, show up in the book as bastions of and advocates of um, true conservatism. And uh, they are Nathaniel Macon, John Randolph, and, of course, uh, John C. Calhoun. Uh, you'd, right. get, you'd get argument from some people about that. About Calhoun, you'd get these extra argument that, my goodness, he was the main uh, defender of slavery itself. And that surely well, that, is the limitation of freedom. That's that's absolutely true. And I, uh, in the book, I, I know I make the statement that there's no question that Calhoun used his considerable gifts uh, uh, in furthering, um, I think, called it an ignoble cause. There's no question that he was, particularly the last part of his career, was very much uh, enmeshed in defending slavery, but there's a lot more to Calhoun than that, and he was, um, I I don't take uh, credit for this, I think Russell Kirk was the thinker who, in the 20th century, sort of rediscovered Calhoun, but uh, you can draw a a, a very clear line from Jefferson to Macon and Randolph and then to Calhoun, and a lot of Calhoun's political life was spent fighting the tariff, fighting the growth of the federal government, maintaining the rights of states to not just maintain slavery, but to maintain their uh, particular uh, ways of life or or whatever, and to resist the the urge to grow the central government. So um, I think you have to filter out the, the, uh, the slavery and the contradiction part and just have to Acknowledge that Calhoun was a was certainly a product of his time and a product of his region. And a leading question, which I will pose just before we pause for some commercials, um, and then look for your answer. And what do we make of, indeed, what should we know but do not truly know about Nathaniel Macon and John Randolph? And we return directly to uh, Garland Tucker after we pause for this. And directly back to Garland S. Tucker author of the new book, Conservative Heroes, 14 Leaders Who Shaped America, from uh, Jefferson to Reagan. And I read uh, a paragraph from the book. In 1801, the House elected Nathaniel Macon of North Carolina as Speaker. In organizing the House leadership, Macon turned to his close friend and political ally, John Randolph of Virginia, a cousin of Thomas Jefferson, to chair the Critically Important Ways and Means Committee and serve as the Republican floor leader in the House. These two statesmen have fallen into relative obscurity, but together they wrote an all-important chapter in the history of American conservatism. What was the nature of that chapter? Well, Mel, I think this is one of the more interesting aspects of the book and one that uh, probably most readers are not familiar with. Uh, it goes back to your question a few minutes ago about uh, the nature of Jefferson's career. When he and Madison left the opposition, Jefferson was elected president in 1800. Madison joined him in the administration, and they began uh, 
a slow but steady uh, migration to a bit more expansive view of the use of the federal government. Well, uh, the, the there was a faction in Congress uh, in 1800. It was the majority of the Republican members in Congress or the Jeffersonians in Congress. But then as, as Jefferson began moving uh, to a more uh, liberal or progressive or centralized um, philosophy, this group of what came to be known as old Republicans, or there was another term that was uh, the tertium quids, the third things, um, this group of old Republicans uh, led by Nathaniel Macon and John Randolph uh, just adamantly refused to uh, to give up on the original what they perceived as the original Jefferson uh, principles that were behind the election of 1800, and it was limited government, um, states' rights, individual freedom, uh, and, and they consistently over a 30-year period uh, were the bulwark against the the national government moving. Uh, too far in the other direction, and Nathaniel Macon from North Carolina and John Randolph from Virginia were the leaders of that, and it, they make a very interesting uh, pair. They were lifelong friends. They shared uh, quarters together in Washington. They were sort of inseparable on the national scene, but two totally different characters. Uh, Nathaniel Macon was uh, somewhat uh, from a personality standpoint, cautious, stolid, uh, conservative, um, reserved, uh, and uh, socially very democratic. Uh, Randolph, on the other hand, was uh, very volatile, acerbic, a brilliant speaker, uh, somewhat erratic in his likes and dislikes, and um, socially was very aristocratic. And so they were kind of the maybe the first political odd couple of the New Republic, but uh, they and again Russell Kirk spotted this particularly in John Randolph that there were some of the real seeds of what has become American conservatism were sown there, and they they had a very lonely fight um, for a number of those years. They were very much in the minority of Jeffersonians, and well, what were the particular sort of, issues uh, over which they fought? Well, things like the the National Bank was one. Um, Jefferson, of course, had opposed Hamilton's proposition on the bank, but then Madison wound up um, advocating the National Bank. The tariff issue was another one. Uh, Jefferson and Madison, in opposition, had opposed any tariff, and then uh, there were compromises, and the tariff became a pretty big factor in the by the 1812-1814 period. Uh, I'd say those were probably the two biggest issues that the um, the, uh, the tertium quids fought over. But they were they were consistently against any kind of non-essential government expenditure. They were not in favor of Henry Clay's American system. Uh, they were just uh, for minimal government and maximum personal freedom. Would you say that, say, in the first half of the 19th century, or up to and including uh, the Civil War, thus up to uh, 65 and somewhat beyond, that America was essentially, um, to use the modern language, uh, progressive rather than conservative in its uh, uh, policy orientation. 
Uh, no, I, I would not. I would not say so. I, I, I would say that um, from uh, up until the Civil War, I think uh, the uh, the 19th century, the first half of the 19th century, American politics were dominated by Jeffersonian politicians. Now, some of the Jeffersonians, like Jackson, was more expansive in his views, but he was still basically he was not a Federalist, not a Whig. Um, and uh, until the Civil War, the federal government was really a, a very minuscule part of American life, I and mean, it was it was remarkably tiny and feeble in terms of its reach and uh, power. And that was largely because of people like Macon and Randolph and other Jeffersonians who really thought that the major public decision should be made at the state and local level. These are all Jeffersonians by your designation, Mm -hmm. and I think uh, most American historians would agree. What then do we make of the the paradox, if it is that, that Jefferson is seen as the founder of the modern, quote, more or less progressive party, namely the Democratic Party? Well, there... uh uh, and it is ironic because there probably more than any other aspect of his philosophy, there's this consistent theme of limited government, and that's very much contrary to the to the modern Democratic um, Party. I think the probably the tenets that the Democratic Party is most comfortable with with Jefferson were his um, his extreme dedication to democracy, uh, social. Uh, equality, uh, and uh, I think that was that, that was one of the aspects of his uh, of his policy. But uh, quotes like uh, Jefferson's famous for saying that, uh, well, a revolution every generation wouldn't be a bad thing, uh, which have led some people to think he really was not in favor of strict construction of the Constitution and. Um, or an expansive view that each generation could kind of write its own ground rules and um, uh, more of a living document, if you will, for the Constitution. And I think it's those concepts that the modern Democratic Party has has found most comforting. Uh, We are about to pause for the usual reasons, um, but uh, since you uh, certainly hold strongly to the principle, it's one of your five basic um, principles of conservatism, that uh, liberty in the economic realm is crucial, and that means free enterprise and competition. Uh, you will not object to some commercial messages, and then we return directly to Garland S. Tucker III. And uh, Garland, as we return to you, I offer you um, a view of conservatism, and for that matter, of its opposite, <coughs> uh, which uh, renders it essentially a matter of constitution that is to say, of human constitution rather than political constitution. This, in the wise um, view of uh, none other than uh, uh, Gilbert of Gilbert and Sullivan. I often think it's comical, falada, falada, how nature always does contrive, falada, That's born into the world alive Is either a little liberal Or else a little t- 
So there we have it. Interview of Gilbert and, Gilbert and Sullivan in Ialanthe. The guard standing before the House of Parliament uh, sings essentially a, a, a offers us a genetic theory of liberalism and conservatism. Uh, you're born into the world alive, either a little liberal or else a little conservative. Uh, there you go. Is it true? <laughs> well, there's probably some truth to that. <laughs> what truth would there be? Is it a matter of temperament, do you think, or personality? Or Well, I guess I guess there's some temperament, but I'd really like to think that the, um, the, the basic principles we're talking about here are pretty generally applicable to uh, all of us. And if, uh, if we're honest and looking around at how we're made as individuals and what seems to work in our corporate life, I think the conservative principles are the ones that really make the, the most sense. Well, were you born into this world uh, as a conservative? I was not. Well, it's, it's a little hard to say. I was certainly brought up as one. Uh, <laughs> my, my, my parents would fit that category. Well, I was not. My parents uh, were uh, uh, Jewish immigrants from Eastern Europe, uh, and they were great fans of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And uh, I was sort of reared on this intuitive confirmation that they and all of their friends shared uh, of the legitimacy of the New Deal program, even when the New Deal program was over. Um, well, it took, it can... took uh, a lot of uh, change through my maturing years and perhaps even through such scholarship as I did to finally turn me in the conservative direction. Well, you can appreciate the truth even more, right? <laughs> well, I'm aware of a, of, a, of a significant shift that did occur. And indeed, it occurred uh, in many of my social stratum, which is to say Jewish intellectuals of a certain age uh, wow. and of a certain education. Right. Um, one of my best friends uh, in later life, when I came to the University of Chicago as a, a young faculty member was none other than Milton Friedman, who may also have directly influenced me, I think. Well, he shared some of your background, I'm, I'm sure. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Um, in your book, we have a big jump uh, from Calhoun all the way forward uh, to Grover Cleveland. Um, right. And you've talked some about Cleveland already, but uh, why don't you just complete that picture of Cleveland's uh, role in this history of the persistence of conservatism in American political thought. Right. Uh, well, as I mentioned a minute ago, the um, the first half of the 19th century was dominated in the U.S. by generally by Jeffersonians, and then the Civil War came along, and there was a massive realignment politically. The Whigs disappeared. The Democrats split north and south, and the Republican Party became the predominant uh, national party. And uh, because it successfully uh, prosecuted the war and um, wound up being what was known then as the Grand Old Party, uh, it really stood for, uh, at that time, centralized, expansive federal government. And the Democratic Party uh, was, in addition to being somewhat suspect, as being tied uh, a bit to secessionism and uh, the South was uh, very much out of favor, and Grover Cleveland was really the only Democrat elected during the second half of the 19th century. Uh, he was a uh, experienced uh, 
truly meteoric rise in politics. I served as mayor of Buffalo, New York for a couple of years, became uh, from there, went on to be governor of New York for less than two years, was nominated by the Democrats. Uh, the Democrats were desperate to get back into national office, and they needed a, a northern a politician. Uh, Cleveland had just been elected governor, so they nominated him, and he won. And a very close election, but but barely won. And uh, it, it was very interesting. I don't think the Democrats knew exactly what they were going to get, but they got a very conservative Jeffersonian who was uh, totally incorruptible. He was honest to a fault in a period that was known for crony capitalism and lots of insider dealings, and uh, the Republican Party had gotten very lax on uh, on crony capitalism, and Cleveland was uh, totally opposed to that, ran a very clean administration, but more importantly, he um, just really was relentless in going through the budget and carving out what he thought was unnecessary expenditures. Like, and I um... mentioned... I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was just said I mentioned a minute ago that he ha- still holds the record as the number of presidential vetoes, f- over 500, yeah. uh, primarily against uh, what he viewed as excessive spending. Let's stop for a moment to take a word or two about you. Um, you are essentially a member of what one would call the banking community, I suppose. Uh, well, I'm, I'm the CEO of a public company that uh, is basically a specialty finance company. And uh, so that's what I, that's what my day job is. Uh, my nighttime hobby is reading history and occasionally trying to write a little bit. Are you a political activist in any serious sense? Well, I've, I've certainly got a, an ongoing interest politically, and I'm uh, active from time to time in North Carolina, uh, both uh, at the state level and, and uh, in presidential elections as well in North Carolina. Now, time being very short, I'm going to have to do some violence uh, and skip a number of the chapters in your book. You've got a very interesting chapter on Calvin Coolidge and Andrew Mellon, uh, his Secretary of the Treasury. You've got a fascinating chapter on um, Josiah Bailey, not known, I'm sure, to many Americans, and to John Davis, who was a presidential candidate, probably uh, unknown also to many Americans. The last of the um, of the Democratic candidates whom you take to have been essentially a conservative. That's um, correct. And we come, and you're very fond of Robert Taft, who gets a, a very appreciative chapter. But time, as I say, being very short, and uh, American politics still booming away, we come to the last chapter, which is about three men, each of whom, well, they influenced one another from the first one, William Buckley Jr., to Barry Goldwater, to Ronald Reagan. Um, just take it from there. That's a, a very fascinating trio. Well, it uh, it is a fascinating trio, and I think it's uh, it's interesting to think back historically to when William Buckley uh, came on the scene as a very, very young man, uh, just graduating from Yale, uh, wrote his book God and Man at Yale, and um, which caused quite a stir in the academic community and became a bestseller. And you know, I've got I've got to, I've got to tell you, interrupting you for just a moment, uh, yeah. <clears throat> but and another quick autobiographical uh, reference. Uh, 
I um, taught at Yale. My first academic job after I got my doctorate was at Yale. And uh, Buckley had written the book, and the book existed, and I read it in preparation for going to Yale. And that may have been, for all I know, the beginning of my slow, gradual conversion in the conservative direction. Well, I think it's a remarkable book, and particularly written by someone of his age. Um, but the, the the thing that's hard even for us to, to uh, really realize and appreciate was that in 1950, when Buckley was graduating, the prevailing intellectual consensus in the United States was that liberalism had won, Mm-hmm. And very few people were even willing to call themselves conservative, and it was uh, most intellectuals would say there really was no cohesive conservative philosophy. Uh, and Buckley stepped into that and realized that the American public was a lot more conservative than it was willing to admit or or realized, and. He was determined to become the voice of modern conservatism, and that's exactly what he did. And he did it with, um, with the—his vehicle was the National Review, which he founded and edited for many years. That's exactly right. And Young Americans for Freedom and uh, several publishing companies. And, of course, he was constantly speaking and debating, and he just became very much the public um, voice of conservatism, and he was so articulate, so brilliant, so attractive that uh, you couldn't have found a, a better spokesman. And he was able to pull together what, at least at that time, appeared to be some disparate strands of conservatism, uh, libertarians, anti-communist, uh, Burkean uh, traditionalists. Would you say that he, pulled- shaped, that he shaped the attitudes of Barry Goldwater, what's his influence in that direction? Yeah, I, th- I think he, I think he very much did. I mean, I think Barry Goldwater was uh, was comfortable with Buckley's uh, philosophy definition of conservatism, but uh, Buckley really was responsible for uh, writing or having written *The Conscience of a Conservative*, which uh, was written with Goldwater for Goldwater. And that became the uh, sort of a, the handbook of political conservatives. And then and we the come to of, the to the last of the great presidential conservatives, Ronald Reagan, to whom we shall turn directly after this. Uh, the book by Garland Tucker that we're drawing from, Conservative Heroes, is published by ISI Books. And here's a surprise for you, uh, a brief excerpt from... Uh, Ronald Reagan's speech in favor of Goldwater delivered to the country, I think, just the night before the election. This is the meaning in the phrase of Barry Goldwater, peace through strength. Winston Churchill said the destiny of man is not measured by material computations. When great forces are on the move in the world, we learn we're spirits, not animals. And he said there's something going on in time and space and beyond time and space, which, whether we like it or not, spells duty. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. We will keep in mind and remember that Barry Goldwater has faith in us. He has faith that you and I have the ability and the dignity and the right to make our own decisions and determine our own destiny. Thank you very much. 
We only have about eight minutes left. They are devoted to Ronald Reagan. How do you respond to uh, your memory of that particular speech to begin with? Well, of course, that's a, uh, a landmark speech, and I think it shows how intertwined uh, Buckley, uh, Goldwater, and Reagan were, their lives. Uh, Buckley had a lot to do with Goldwater's winning the nomination, and Goldwater won the nomination. The high point of his campaign was the speech by Ronald Reagan, which uh, resonated all across the country and was the the best explanation, better than really any explanation that Goldwater ever gave of his philosophy, and uh, it really was represented the um, the beginning of Reagan's campaign for the presidency. How had Reagan been shaped into a conservative? He started surely also as a kind of Rooseveltian liberal. Yeah, started absolutely as a New Deal Democrat. I think his experience with the screenwriters. Union uh, had a lot to do with that. He had his eyes opened as to uh, the dangers of communist infiltration. Uh, then his years uh, as a speaker for the General Electric Company I think, were very valuable to him in two ways. It sent him around the country uh, speaking to everyday Americans, and he really gained a, a great uh, affection and rapport with uh, everyday Americans and a good sense of what life in America is like. But he also, uh, it gave him an opportunity to fine-tune his political thinking, his uh, his worldview, if you will, and to become just a master of articulating that in a way that the average American could understand. Um, your five principles of conservatism, as, we, as you elaborated them at the beginning of our discussion— uh, which of those five were particularly important in his presentation to the country? Uh, well, you know, I really think you can find all five of those just riddled through everything Reagan said. Um, he was absolutely for limited government. He believed government was the problem, not the solution. He had a very realistic view of mankind and uh, the role of government and setting boundaries, but the opportunity for men to flourish within those boundaries. Um, they certainly had a, a, a complete commitment to the link between private property and, and human rights. Um, I think you could, I think Reagan was the uh, walking incarnation of those five principles. <laughs> and he was a great uh, success for the Republican Party. Um what do you make of contemporary Republican Party uh, advocacy, and what do you make of um, the emergence, once again, I, I'm arguing this is the case, of the division which was visible in the Republican nominating convention uh, in which he won uh, the nomination? That is, the division um, between uh, left and right Republicans. Well, I think the, the first remarkable thing is that, uh, again, contrasting it to the going back to the 1950s and then even uh, into the uh, 1970s when Reagan was nominated, uh, if you look at the Republican contenders today, and I don't know how many there are, 15 or 18 or whatever it is. There's a new one every day. Yeah, exactly. Uh, almost without exception, they call themselves conservatives. Yeah. And uh, that's an indication of how much, I think that's the tribute to Buckley and his vision, and 
uh, it's no longer uh, <laughs> a problem to say you're a conservative Republican. In fact, it's the other way around. If you if you can't say that, you're probably not going to do very well. Well, then we, we come to the moment of truth or the moment of payoff. That is to say, in the merely four minutes or so we have left, who in the current field of Republican candidates or likely candidates strikes you as um, most truly conservative? Well, I think it's it's still true that there are some uh, the the strands that Buckley pulled together libertarians, uh, anti-communist, traditional conservative. There's still those those strands, and there's some candidates running today that would come down more sharply on social issues, more sharply on libertarian issues. Uh, but I think there are uh, a handful of uh, of the candidates, and I, I would say. Generally, the commentators seem to think that the three candidates who currently probably have the best shot at the nomination are uh, Scott Walker, Rubio, and and Jeb Bush. Are I think all three of those are candidates who can appeal to pretty much across the spectrum within the the Republican Party today. And I think if um, without the ability to appeal to those various segments, it's going to be very difficult for someone to get the nomination or to ultimately win the election. An interesting issue there is the question of um, immigration and particularly the legalization of the illegals. Now, actually, Reagan himself uh, began that process, Um, though lots of uh, presently self-identified conservative Republicans would say that was the wrong way to go, and it would be the wrong way to go with all the remainder of illegal resident aliens. And I think uh, I think I'm right on this. I think Reagan expressed some remorse that yes. he, that uh, the deal he cut on that was not exactly what he thought it was going to be. The um, uh, he certainly knew it was a path to legalization, but then the fact that the border became so porous was not at all what was envisioned. And, um, well, of the three of the three you've named, only Scott Walker, it seems to me, stands possibly in opposition to further easy legalization. Yeah. Well, I think there's there there, there undoubtedly will be some refinement. I think there's already some uh, question from from Jeb Bush about uh, or some refinement on his as to whether he's talking about a path to legalization or a path to citizenship, and he's drawing some. Uh, definition around that, and um, you know, I suspect that there will be um, uh, some consensus within the Republican Party that'll that will come together on immigration. I certainly hope so. Interestingly, the um, the critical point from the left, if one considers it the left or considers this a leftish point, is that this serves uh, crony capitalism. That uh, the uh, encouragement of illegal entry into the country provides a cheap labor force for those who are far too wealthy already. That's what uh, uh, Mrs. Clinton was sort of suggesting even two days ago in her second uh, second appearance as a new candidate. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a pretty fluid issue right now, and we'll probably hear a number of different slants on it as, as uh, the various politicians try to figure out What's a winning combination, I guess? Well, sir, I thank you most sincerely for joining us uh, in this hour. Um, The new book by Garland S. Tucker III is Conservative Heroes, 14 Leaders Who Shaped America from Jefferson 
to Reagan, to Reagan, published by ISI Books. And uh, and I appreciate your taking the time for us today. Thanks so much. We don't smoke marijuana in Muskogee. We don't take our trips on LSD. We don't burn our draft cards down on Main Street. <laughs> 